reason, uh, mysterious God, uh, for some reason, uh, he wanted this particular word for us this morning. Uh, so may we trust the Lord that this is particular for our time, for our circumstance, uh, as the body of Christ and individually. Uh, so may we give attention to the reading of God's word. Psalm 125 says, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good, and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Lord Jesus, we, uh, we come to you now asking for your guidance. Um, in your word, we ask for attentive hearts. Uh, Lord, we, of all people, um, gather this morning in the midst of a tumultuous culture and time, maybe even turmoil in our own lives, and we return once again to this place to gather to worship with your people uh, because we believe you are faithful and we trust you. So I pray this morning, Holy Spirit, work and need uh, the grace of God into our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so um, I have this recurring dream uh, that happens over and over again that I encounter grizzly bears, and I think it's because I worked in Yellowstone for a couple summers, and uh, I had another one this week. Um, and they're all different. It's kind of crazy. I should just like start writing children's stories of, well, maybe not children's stories, <laughs> being attacked by grizzly bears. Um, but I feel like Psalm 125 was like this wrestling match with a bear uh, for me this week. Uh, it's, it's a tough, I, I just, confessing to you, I have a hard time preaching the Psalms. Um, sometimes they're just hard to get principles out of and... Um, and what, what direction it's going. So uh, this morning, uh, I thought we'd hit on the theme of faith, uh, really emphasizing this first, first verse here, but, but landing all the way through the Psalms. Um, you guys know who Billy Graham is, in case you don't know that name. He's one of the greatest evangelical preachers of our age. Uh, his wife, named Ruth Graham, was asked, what's the hardest, most difficult thing about marriage? And she said, it's just showing up daily. Uh, she said, it's, uh, it's the hanging in there. That's so hard. It's continuing to show up uh, for life when it's hard. And so I, I would dare say that the, this answer also applies not just to marriage, but to any relationship. And in particular, in our relationship with the Lord. Uh, faith could be defined as defined in Scripture, the uh, in Hebrews, as the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. 
hoped for and not seen, those faith, with those two things added to it, uh, make faith really difficult at times. So you could say uh, that faith, using Ruth Graham's words, it's so daily. It's just the hanging in there. It's trusting, continuing to show up each day to trust in the Lord when life just gets hard. Even when we don't feel it, feel like it's working, it seems distant, he seems distant. When life gets hard, we just kind of want to break. And you may at times, even, uh, even this morning, asking, is this faith journey even worth it? So, how does faith work? How do, how do we continue to trust in the Lord? How do we access this, this energy, this power, just to do the daily grind of faith? To trust, to, to hang in there. I, I want to approach this psalm uh, this may not surprise you if you know me. I want to approach it in a couple different ways. One is, um, I want to look at it thinking about uh, the person of Jesus and how he trusted his father. Because I think sometimes we use these words uh, in church and, uh, and leave them kind of in the theoretical, theological realm and maybe not drill down deep enough on them. Kind of seeing the brass tacks, if you will, of, of what faith is. So I want, I want to do that and kind of through that, looking at our own faith journey. So, so first of all, this, this faith, this Jesus faith, you may be thinking, what do you mean Jesus faith? Like the person of Jesus showed faith? Uh, Jesus didn't need saving faith, but Jesus needed trust in his Father at its most basic level, uh, right? The, this first verse um, when we look at it, if you, if you want to understand, it's right. It goes back to, I've said this over and over again, but it goes back to this basic principle. If I want to know how to do life, right? I know this is just so stinking simple, but we miss it every time. If I want to know how to do life, then I should probably watch the person of Jesus do life. If I want to know how to trust the Lord, then I should probably watch the one who did it perfectly, the person of Jesus. Because when we do that, boom, like faith sticks. Something happens. It moves from the theoretical, the the dreamy out there, the floaty ideas world to a really raw faith of what does it look like to trust the Lord? Let's watch Jesus. Let's watch where he gets how he does faith, how, how does he show us how to do it daily? Where does, where does he get the energy just to show up every day in his incarnate flesh and trust the Father? So let's, let's do that. So this first verse says, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. Mount Zion is, is uh, lots of words used in Scripture that are synonymous with Mount Zion, the city of David, Jerusalem, uh, it's, it's kind of this, it's this city, city that's surrounded by all these mountains. If you want a big picture of kind of a visual of what Mount Zion would look like, it's kind of like Chattanooga, right? Chattanooga is in a bowl surrounded by a missionary ridge, uh, Lookout Mountain, Signal Mountain, 
right? It's got these ridges all the way around it. There's a sense in which it's a fortification, a, a place of protection that's hard for people to attack. It's hard for the enemy to get to. It's a, it's a stronghold. So the Old Testament believers saw that physically as they set up the temple in the city of Jerusalem, this fortification, this place that would be really, really difficult to get to. So when you think about those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, think about that, that rock, that place of fortification. Because faith at its basic core, again, elementary stuff here. At, its, at the basic core of what faith is, it trusts. And at the basic core of what faith is, it, it has an object to it. So what is this man of faith? Who is this man of faith that has at its basic core a trust, but also has at the object of his faith? So let, just think about, I want you to give, uh, think about these words then we're listening to, I want you to think about them from, from this perspective. Everybody with me? Listen to these words as the, the most faithful man that has ever lived is speaking these words. Listen to what he says. Jesus replied in John 5, Truly, truly, I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself unless he sees the Father doing it. For whatever the Father does, the Son also does. The Father loves the Son and shows him all that he does. And to your amazement, he will show him even greater things than these. The man of faith says, I can do nothing on my own. The man of faith says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that, all, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Jesus says in John 8, when you see the Son of Man lifted up, then you will know that I am he, and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak the things As the Father taught me, and he who sent me is with me, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Does this sound like a man of faith? Finally, in John 12, for I do not speak, I do not speak of my own initiative, Jesus says, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. You hear the voice, can you hear the tone and the voice of Jesus that is just saying, I am not here on my own. If this is the the most righteous Savior, the God-man who shows up incarnate flesh and he never does anything on his own. He's a man that lived by faith. He trusted his father explicitly. Oh man, may the grace of God and the power of the Spirit enable us that if we ever think that we can walk and do this faith journey on our own, we are most to be pitied. Faith has to 
look at Jesus to watch how to do it. If we continue to to live in this life, in this world, I was telling some friends this week that I feel like culturally what's going on is there's this, there's like we have this grand opportunity as the church to be faith-filled people in the midst of a culture that is swirling. It's like this hurricane that's going on all around us and the church is the eye of the storm that's just this calm presence. We are Mount Zion. We are found by God and established by him. And when the whirlwind, when people get tired of living in the whirlwind, guess what they're going to do? Maybe next year, maybe 10 years, maybe 30 years, the stable presence of the church, they're going to come back. They're going to go, man, like I need stability in my life. I want to go back to Mount Zion and be found there. How do, so you may be thinking about, about Jesus. You may be thinking this, okay, the person of Jesus. You may be thinking, man, faith is easy for him. Like he's the son of God, right? You know, like trusting his father, he's been with him forever. Like why are you using Jesus as an example of faith? Maybe that's going through your mind. Let me challenge you a little bit. Uh, just by thinking about the eternal counsel of God. Uh, We call this in theological terms, uh, this this grand covenant of redemption that really scripture gives in in brushstrokes all over. But this this idea, this is really important that, that before the foundation of the world, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and the counsel of, of the Godhead, the Father said, Son, I want you to go and redeem a people for myself. And Jesus said, I will go redeem a people for yourself. And the Spirit said, yes, and I will apply that redemption throughout the ages. And they entered into a covenant in the Godhead to go and carry out that plan. I don't know to what detail, Scripture doesn't give us the details of this conversation, but it might have gone something like this. Uh, the father says to the son, um, the way we're going to do this is that you, as the second person of the Trinity, Trinity, you're going to enter into a womb. You're going to start as a zygote. And you're going to be confined, Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, into the, the smallness of a woman's womb. And then you're going to and then you're going to be born into this hostile environment where there is utter wickedness upon the earth. And then someone's going to try to kill you and you're going to flee to Egypt, then you're going to come out of Egypt, then you're going to be raised in Nazareth and you're going to you're going to learn about me, you're going to grow in wisdom and stature and in favor with me and in with man. And you're going to develop like a normal human being develops in this world, but remember, you're, you're my righteous son and you're going to live in a wicked world. And then, and then the whole world, son, is going to hate you. They're going to hate you so much that they're going to kill you. All your friends are going to betray you except for one. They're going to nail you to a cross. They're going to beat you and whip you and nail you to a cross and you're going to die. 
Now, if you're the son in that grand made-up conversation that I just gave you, um, how do you say yes to that? Um, I'd be like scooting to the back of the line. <laughs> okay, let, can we, let's let the Spirit do this. But Jesus says, yes, I'm in. Why does, he, why does he say yes? Why does he say yes? Because he trusts his father. He trusts the plan. He trusts the redemption that is set before them. And he does this because of love, ultimately. But you don't enter into an agreement like that unless you trust the person who's with you in it. You don't enter into marriage unless you trust the person that you're going to marriage and that you're going to marry. You don't enter into relationships with one another. Trust is at the core of that. See, Jesus trusted his father so much that he would enter into and have this faith in the midst of hostility and persecution and he would agree to do what he did. How about your trust in the Lord, my trust in the Lord? If, if you were to say five faith statements, like Jesus said, I, I do nothing on my own. I do nothing on my own initiative. I only speak what I hear the Father say. I only do what I hear the Father tells me to do. Those faith-like statements, what would those statements in your life be like? Do you trust the Lord? Let now and sit. Do you trust the Lord? Our faith is see we have an we have an object to our faith, our trust. It's, it's, it is the Lord. Do you, to trust someone, you know their character. Do you know the, the character of the one that you trust? Do you, our faith is not a, right? It's not a blind faith. Faith is, is a really hard thing. We're going to see this in a minute. When you said you want to, Give your life to Christ, I believe, I trust. You're, you're placing your trust in a person. I know, again, this sounds really basic, but I, I feel like, oh, sorry. I feel like the church has just been glossing over terms for too long. So what does it mean, what does it mean when you place your faith in God, when you trust the Lord? It means that you, are actually, you actually believe that there was historical Jesus who showed up, he was the son of God, who lived a perfect life and died on a Roman cross and then was raised again to life. Like you believe in an actual historical person who lived 2,000 years ago. That's where your faith is being placed. It's not in this mysterious theological philosophy. Jesus isn't an idea. He's a person. That's where your faith, he's the object of your faith. 
The object of your trust is a person. And I love that fact that uh, we, we trust in a person. We trust in who he is and what he's done, right? That's when we trust people. Why do you trust him? Do you know him? What's his character like? What's the character of Jesus like? Give me, give me some. Just throw some out. What's Jesus like? Not a rhetorical question. Compassionate. Thank you. Righteous. Humble. Merciful. Okay, y'all, listen, especially if you're young in the faith, listen to these descriptive words being thrown out. This is the one that you trust. Keep going. Gracious. Awesome. Wise. Honest. Loving. Powerful. Faithful. Patient. Forgiving. Obedient. Just. Thank you all. We could go on all afternoon with descriptions of Jesus, characteristics of who he is. This is who you trust in. He's real. He is all these things. If I was to say, hey, trust in Lane Ford, give me some descriptions of Lane. We're not going to do that. But you, right, I trust Lane because Lane is a friend of mine and I know some characteristics of Lane. I know some attributes of Lane that have developed me to trust him. Faith is not as complicated as we've made it. It's trusting in a God who sent his son, who's so loving, kind, humble, gentle, patient, kind, honest, all those things y'all mentioned. It's placing your trust in him. Do you trust in the Lord who brings security that's described in verses 1 and 2? Right? Like those who trust in him, you who trust in this person of Jesus are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. Ephesians 2 tells us that the security of faith comes from this God who is rich in mercy. From this God who, while we were dead in our sins, made us alive again to Christ, together with Christ. By grace you have been saved through faith, raised, listen to this. This is what trust in the person of Jesus does. It's raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. How much more secure can you get? That when you place your trust in this beautiful, righteous person named Jesus, who is your Savior, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life that can never be blotted out, and you are seated with him in the heavenly places. No wonder the psalmist says, we are like Mount Zion, we cannot be moved, and we abide forever, right? Right? 
From this time forth and forevermore, the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds you. You're in the throne room of heaven, surrounded by God. What a beautiful picture of security in Christ. Some more verses say, Ephesians 1, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, listen to this, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Talk about security. In him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed, and you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantor of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. 2 Corinthians 1.22, And who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee? Ephesians 4.30, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Oh, follower of Jesus, if you've put your trust in him, you're sealed. You cannot be pulled from his grasp, John 10 says, that God has his grip on you and you cannot be pulled from it. You are secure in his redemption forever. So let me transition these next couple of verses here in verse 3. Because you might be thinking, uh, verse 3, you might be thinking Jesus' faith, his trust in the Lord. I mean, was it really ever tested? Was it really tested? For those big, big theological words, was Jesus peccable or impeccable? I'm not going to get into that. We'll talk about it later. But what, what is this, this Jesus? I mean, is it, is it really that hard for Jesus? Was it really that hard for Jesus to wake up every morning in his incarnate flesh and do life, trusting his Father? Well, verse 3, there's kind of a shift in the psalm, and this is where it gets hard, right? The scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to, to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Right, so Jesus, was he really tested? Was there, I mean, I gave you the ideas of kind of what he's done in his life in this covenant of redemption, but like no other before or since, has anyone experienced a scepter of wickedness like Jesus? And you could say the scepter of wickedness was kind of the venom of the Pharisees. You could say it was his own people who, wanted, who screamed, crucify him, crucify him. You could say it's his closest friends, who, one who betrayed him with a kiss. Uh, you could say it's the people who just demanded miracles. They just wanted him to do stuff like, heck, they had their great, the, the welfare system was right there in front of them. Just provide bread for us all the time. Do miracles. Lots of attacks, not to mention the evil one, who, who the height of, uh, of spiritual warfare and the, 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 deem, the demonic forces that were at, at play when Jesus showed up in the incarnate, as the incarnate son. There was a scepter of wickedness indeed after Jesus. 
uh, so much so that he endured a scepter of, of wickedness on the cross. So did Jesus go through hard stuff? Um, I would say so. How do, how do we respond? How, do, how did Jesus respond in the midst of all that scepter of wickedness that was coming after him? How did he respond? He responded with love for his enemies. He responded with words like, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He didn't respond with rage, with anger, with unrighteous anger. He didn't respond by grabbing Peter's sword and going, no, Peter, not you, me. Let's go to war. Let's, let's take these guys on. It was this calm presence in the midst of a storm. And, and, and in the Garden of Gethsemane, right, he's wrestling with this whole covenant of redemption. It's time for this covenant to be solidified. And what's he do? He says, Father, I trust you. Like when the crucible was turned up on Jesus, what did faith look like? What did he do? Did he just go, man, forget this. Like, it's gotten too hard now, Lord. Uh, there was a, he was tempted, for sure. Isn't that beautiful that your Savior was tempted? That his faith was tried? Faith was hard for Jesus? What? This faith journey, like... Let's quit telling our kids, like the younger generations, that faith is easy. It is not. It is a struggle. It is hard to wake up daily and just go, I, I, I trust you, Lord. Everything's swirling around. I don't know if I can do this anymore, but I need your grace to hang on. Right? We can, we can again, learn from Jesus in the midst of the crucible of struggle of faith. What did he do? How did he respond? He responds favorably and continues to trust and love. How, how does your faith respond when the scepter of wickedness comes after you? Good question to ponder. In the form of suffering or struggle, you feel distance from him. When your own sin hits again, do you run to other vices to get the fix? You salve your soul, you escape. I escape. Right? The temptations to abandon the Lord are many and to walk away from faith. Right? Why is it that, that the statistics are so high? Some, some are saying now that the statistics are that if a, a child grows up in a Christian church, in a Christian home, in a Christian youth group, that some statistics are starting to say that 80% of them will leave the church and never return. And I think it's because our culture is, is offering this enticement that says, come be you. Come live independent. Do what you want. And man, that feels right. But it's so not right. right. It leads to further slavery and further bondage. It leads to caving in of life. And that's why the church is Mount Zion and people will return. 
They will come back. I'm confident of that. So how does your faith respond when the scepter of wickedness comes after you? What's really cool is to, to see the grace of God in this statement. Look what it says. Maybe we just missed it. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous. I love this, this grace that God gives. When you think about the life of Jesus, the scepter of wickedness, the greatest place we see the scepter of wickedness coming at Jesus is on the cross. Boom, like death hits the Son of God. And for three days, he's in the grave. A scepter of wickedness has come upon him, but it says it shall not rest on the land. See, God's grace is that scepter of wickedness may come in your life. Trouble, suffering, sin, struggle may come in your life, but it will not rest there forever. It didn't rest for Jesus. Resurrection was the end of the story for Jesus, not wickedness. So for you and I to experience a scepter, the, the struggle of suffering and everything that goes along with it, for you and I to experience that is to understand that there will be reprieve, there will be refuge, there will be resurrection that will come. Do you believe that? To hold on to that truth that this grace, that the scepter does come. It does, suffering is part of the, your faith journey. But it does not rest on you. Philippians 3 says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Who doesn't want to know that? And then Paul goes on to say this, and the fellowship of his sufferings. Oh, man, really? Be conformed to him in his death. Oh, I don't like that part. How's that going to happen? It's going to happen through struggle, through trial. Like God's design of faith is so complicated, but we try to simplify it and say it's a place of no suffering. It's a place of no struggle. It's a place of no doubts. That's hogwash. Like faith is struggle. Part of the beauty of faith is that God's design is the struggle of it makes faith stronger. No one else creates paradoxes like that but God. He goes on to say in Romans 6, if, For if we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united to him in his resurrection. Right? Grace upon grace. The Lord whom we trust doesn't let wickedness accumulate. He knows temptations, your temptations have limits. And God will not test you beyond what you can handle. That's a comforting grace. All right, so verse 4 says, Do good, O Lord. Like there's this, uh, this hope in the midst of this. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. Right, this longing. Notice it doesn't say do good to those who are perfect, sinless, etc., but to those who trust you who are honest and dependent on you. And I just want to end our time by, verse 5 is very complex. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead 
away with evildoers. I read a bunch of commentaries this week just trying to, Matthew Henry brought this in and as I was reading, I was like, man, this reminds me of Hebrews 6. Is he talking about apostasy here? Like someone who abandons the faith. And Matthew Henry agreed that yes, uh, that is where he's going in this. But it's like this, you know, it's the idea of the temptations of the world and the flesh and the devil. Uh, it's going to be difficult in this present evil age, this kind of torrent of temptations uh, that will really appeal to our inmost desires, right? Culture knows how to get at our, our inmost desires, our sexuality. It knows how to grab a hold of that. Your personality, your, your desires, your objects of trust. He knows the devices to tempt you in your heart. Hebrews 6 warns us that the church, those are part of the covenant community, but not the elect, will turn aside to those crooked ways. I just want to read this because I don't want to get it wrong. They're like the seed. In verse 5, these are like the people that are like the seed that falls on the rocky ground. Hebrews tells us that those who have been enlightened, those who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, and then have fallen away, to be restored to repentance themselves are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to open shame. So for some to be free to pursue your own path and trust in yourself and money and finding the true inner self, as our culture would say, it will entice us to abandon faith, proving key here that true faith actually never existed. The reformed view of apostasy is really that Perhaps you've made a false claim. Because we believe in the eternal security of salvation, that if you have truly repented and confessed and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved and nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. But because of the warning in Hebrews 6, we have to examine our hearts and and I ask the question, is my faith, my trust in the Lord, do I really trust Jesus for my life, that his righteousness is now my own, and that I'm forgiven of all my sins? And that I believe that he rose again and gives me the hope of eternal life. Do I believe that? We have to ask that question this morning. If you're here this morning and the tempter is whispering to you, it's not worth it. This faith trust thing is for the weak. It's a crutch. You don't need him. Can't you feel it? Go your own way. Do your true self. Be you. Pursue the crooked way. It's more fun earnestly plea with you if that whisper is going on at different times in your life to repent and turn to the one who says 
I love you. I forgive the struggle of that. I want you to come back to me. And I want you to find the greatest security that you'll ever find in salvation through me. Jesus cares enough about you to not give you a life of ease and comfort. Put your trust in the Lord. All right, our final hope is just this person. I uh, just wanted to bring in, this reminded me of, of Hebrews chapter 12. In the unshakable kingdom, when he talks about Hebrews 12, starting in verse 22, instead you have come to Mount Zion. Okay, just, I want everybody just close your eyes. Don't fall asleep on me. Sometimes you can concentrate better listening to something. Close your eyes. Just hear these words. This is what, if you've put your trust in Jesus Christ, this is what is yours. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to myriads of angels in joyful assembly to the congregation of the firstborn enrolled in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus you've come, the mediator of the new covenant. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if the people did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much more will they will we escape if we reject him who warns us from heaven? Listen to these words. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised. Once more, I will shake not only the earth, but heaven as well. The words once more signify the removal of what can be shaken. That is created things so that the unshakable may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving an unshakable kingdom, let us be filled with gratitude and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Okay, you can open your eyes again. Brothers and sisters, look to Jesus, the man of faith. Remember who it is that you've put your trust in. Let your imagination, your life, everything about you be captivated by the beauty of Jesus. Seek him out. Your, your salvation is secure when your trust is put in him. He gives us a place of eternal peace, my brothers and sisters. So be encouraged. Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, has gone before us to prepare a place for you that is a place of peace. May the peace of God be upon Israel, be upon his church and be upon you. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for 
man, what a, your word is um, really difficult at times, following you, Lord Jesus. I, I, I pray for just all the younger generations gathered this morning that um, cultural Christianity, man, that is so steeped in, uh, even on Signal Mountain, that there would be a, a reality to the one that we trust is the beautiful Savior, the humble, gentle, kind, loving and forgiving Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray this morning that as we draw ourselves unto you in the midst of uh, a swirling culture, that when the times get hard, that we would remember that those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. They will not be moved, and they will be established forever and ever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.